Welcome, and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the I Love Data Centers podcast. I have here a a new acquaintance of mine via a company that I'm uh, thrilled to be doing business with by the name of Data Data Bank. Um, The CEO, Raul Martinique, you may recall from one of the prior episodes when he was at Digital Bridge, who moved over to to become the CEO. Uh, But in conversations with them over the last couple of weeks, it became obvious that they had a member on their staff that was in a extremely qualified and experienced uh, security professional. And I wanted to get my hands on Mark Haupt, uh, who has been there for a number of years. And I am blessed and grateful to have him on the podcast with us today. Mark, thank you for joining us. Sure. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for uh, bringing me on and, and uh, happy to uh, join and, and share some of my experiences. Awesome. So, Mark, I'm going to start off by saying this. You have a lot of acronyms after your name. Uh, I've got MSISA, CISSP, CCSP, CEHV9, and CHFI. I, honest to God, with the exception of the CISSP, have no clue what any of those mean. Can you can you walk us through and our listeners through what sure. those acronyms mean? Absolutely. Uh, what, what, it, what it boils down to is I have a lot of pieces of paper that make our customers happy and the auditors happy, and uh, they say I have some sort of education, but really what matters is, is what I do. But to walk through each of those, uh, the MSISA or ISA is the master's degree in information security and assurance. Uh, which I obtained about two years ago um, from a practical experience type of scenario with uh, Western Governors University uh, and uh, enjoyed that program there. Um, Obviously, many of the listeners would be familiar with the the CISSP or the Certified Information Systems Security Professional out of ISC Squared is uh, is a pretty, uh, pretty good benchmark for uh, more seasoned security professionals. And I say more seasoned because one of the things a lot of people forget with that is that you need to have a five-year uh, tenure, if you will, in the security environment to even be eligible to take the test. So if you've got people that have CISSP, they've been around a little bit within the security field, either that or somebody's uh, endorsed them that uh, that believes that they have that that experience. And then the, the CCSP is uh, is another ISC Square product that is the cloud computing security professional. It's um it, it's somewhat new uh, in that it is a collaboration between the Cloud Security Alliance and the Cloud Security Alliance's old uh, cloud security knowledge base or CCSK certification. It's kind of a step up from that, and again, it requires some extended 
experience within the security, especially the cloud computing uh, security environment. The uh, CEH is the <clears throat> Certified Ethical Hacker. And as my, my wife uh, likes to say, that, that's, that's the one that says I'm a bad guy with a good, with a good heart or a good mind. <laughs> so I've, I've been trained to, uh, to penetrate systems and hack into systems, but I do it with, uh, with ethics behind it, if, if that's at all possible. And then the, the uh, CHFI, which is the, um, the Hacking Forensics Investigator uh, Certification, is kind of a, a, a parallel uh, to the CEH, only it really focuses on the legal aspects and preparing a, uh, a, a forensic investigation uh, for a legal uh, review, uh, whether that by lawyers themselves or uh, within the court system. So those are, those are two good certifications to have in parallel, especially if you're in a, an environment where um, you, know, some, you, you may have to do some of your own internal investigations. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what those mean. Holy smokes. Um, well, I assume that that's a lot of uh, training and education that you've had to go through, but I'm curious, do, do you have to regularly update those certifications as well? Yes, all of the certifications have to have an annual uh, CEU requirement, uh, the Continuing Education Units uh, requirement, and as well, you have to shell out a few bucks uh, to each of the uh, governing bodies, you know, ISC squared and, and so on and so forth for those certifications. So each one of them has different requirements for CEUs, but usually if you're keeping up on things as a security professional, uh, you can get CEUs. I can get probably get CEUs for, for being involved in this podcast, uh, for example, because it's, it's a presentation uh, that I'm giving uh, and it's, uh, it's eligible for that. So anytime that we go out and we do a, a formal presentation in front of groups. Those are CEU options that we have. Or if you're on the other side of that, you're in a conference or you're in a small presentation type of scenario where a security professional is giving a, a presentation, you can request that they give you some CEUs for that. So it's uh, it's something you have to maintain, but it's uh, it's not terribly difficult if you're actually doing your job. Oh, well, we will definitely get into how all of this applies uh, to what you're doing right now today. Uh, but I'd love to know, you know, we were just briefly chatting before we kicked this off as to where you're located in, in Illinois, which is, you know, also where, where I grew up. Um, but how, did you grow up in, in Lincoln, Illinois, or did you happen to land there after uh, some time? Oh, I, I, I landed here. All right. Um, no, I was not born and raised in Illinois. Actually, I was uh, born and raised. I, I call it across the world. Um, I grew up as a military brat and loved every moment of it. Living in California, Florida, Washington D.C. area, up in Maine, uh, in the United Kingdom, and in Japan. So I got a, a worldwide experience in, in growing up and and growing up in the Department of Defense schools. We had uh, I, I like to call it we had a private private school type of uh, situation in, in many cases. So I got a lot of good education, both practically, uh, you know, in the places I lived, but also you know, academically within the uh, the school systems that I was in. So I landed here in this little bitty town of about 15,000 people um, and at a crossroads uh, in Illinois um, about 10 years ago when I came to a university that's here in town to be their chief technology officer and CISO 
at the same time. Uh, I moved here from Indianapolis after working within a, a Fortune Fortune 500 type of financial industry environment, and uh, kind of came over to this town and this university more as a uh, kind of a, as a giving back type of thing. You know, the school couldn't uh, necessarily afford um, a, a high high paid uh, type of consultant or or uh, highly highly educated uh, IT type people and I've had a relationship with the school here for a while and came over and spent 7 years with them to really to move them from a uh, on-site academic type of environment into an online scenario so I helped them move uh, to the online uh, program, their their adult education program, up into the online program, and I uh, acted as both their CTO and CISO while here. And then uh, after after about seven years, uh, moved on from that to go back into the commercial side of things, if you will. Gotcha, awesome. Well, going back to being a military brat and growing up, um, were you you must have been exposed to technology and whatnot. But were your mom and your dad in, also involved in in tech when they were working for? For the government and the state? <laughs> no, no, I laugh. Uh, no, they're not involved in tech. They haven't been involved in tech, and I'm the, I'm their tech support uh, even even today as they're as they're retired. Um, I I got into tech just you know just because you know early '80s a lot of people you know oogling over uh, you know Ataris and Commodore 64s and and trying to figure out you know what these things are doing and and what you know what exactly can be done with them. And I took a class. Uh, in one of the Department of Defense schools, uh, where we were using Apple II product, and and I quite distinctly remember it was a hey we're going to show you what these things can do, and they taught us how to cause you know, cause a turtle to walk across the screen uh, through programming, and that kind of hooked me. But it also it also told me I had I desired nothing to do with programming, and uh, as a lot of us in this kind of industry will will attest to. You either go down the programming or the hardware track. And from that point forward, I was digging my hands into the apples and into the Commodore 64s and taking them apart and putting them back together to learn how these uh, crazy little chips and and spinning things worked. And uh, I, I figured it out and, you know, make a long story short, so that was in middle school and high school. Uh, I was asked to, one summer, help pull some network cable for the first network that would be in our high school. And uh, and I did that, and I enjoyed it, and uh, from there it became became my career. That is, uh, as you mentioned, the story for most who are starting to play around with the, the gaming systems when they were little, uh, similar similar to me. Uh, my nickname actually back in the day was Game Boy <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I played with them all and took them all apart and broke them, and um, somehow convinced my my parents, and I actually had to shell over a lot of my own. Yeah. money from mowing lawns and whatnot to, to buy to buy all the exactly. stuff that I bought. But um, I can tell you how many pieces and, and things are strung strung across my my history that I just couldn't fix back then, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um well looking into your background, man, thank you for your service. It looks like you spent the better part of a decade working with the with the Navy um in a variety of capacities. But what uh what brought you into the Navy? Well, I, as I said, I grew up Navy. Um, always wanted to be in the military myself. I, honestly, I, I, at the time in which I joined, I wanted to make it a career. Um, the the world was in transition at that point. As I was growing up, you know, we were in the Cold War, and and I spent time overseas uh, during that period of time in the UK, where you know, to put it bluntly, we were on the front front end of the 
of the spear, if you will, um, over in Europe with the with the Soviets and and uh, and even uh, we were over there in 1986, and I watched the um, F-111 uh, strike bombers uh, launch out of Lakenheath in in April of 1986 to uh, to go and strike at Libya in one of the first uh, strikebacks against uh, terrorism uh, during that time. So. You know, growing up, I saw those kinds of things, and I saw the guys in the mop gear and, and planning for kinds of, uh, you know, Soviet-American type of attacks or Soviet-NATO type of uh, type of scenario. And I said, you know, that's what I want to do. And um, my, my dad, um, you know, I, I, I look up to my father, as many, many people do, and my dad served, and he was a cryptologist. And so I said, you know, that kind of sounds like I'd be interesting thing to do. It's all, you know, behind the behind the black curtain and can't talk about it or I'd have to kill you kind of thing. And thought, oh, that's that's James Bond wearing a uniform. So let's go check that out. And and, uh, you know, through talking to the recruiter and working with uh, with dad and whatnot, we I, I joined up and uh, went in as a as a cryptologist myself. But I, I was I, I was smart enough to take the cryptology route that had me doing things that was going to apply to my career choice going forward. And uh, so I took communications track. And so we were dealing with uh, satellite communications and IP networks and non-IP networks and encryption and, and physical security as well. So I learned a lot of my basics in security right there, working with the Naval Security Group uh, in in, in doing that cryptology work in uh, in both Washington D.C. and and over in Okinawa, Japan, for the, the period of time that I was in, and so that that was really a foundation uh, of where where I got my professional start, if you will. That's awesome. Um, and you you mentioned early on that you were lucky enough to go down a track that would apply to your your profession. Um, yeah. Interesting enough, we just very recently brought on board a uh, U.S. Army. Uh, Ranger who has four months left of service mm -hmm. down in Fort Bragg uh, out of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, and what's really cool is they just started a program for uh, those in service who have four months left of service who are not on the front line or, or in combat situations uh, or directly supporting those combat situations to give them an opportunity to go out into the private sector and get an internship. And oh, that's so, great. Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool program. And so the, the military pays for that internship and you just simply as a company have to be within an hour's driving distance of the base and you have to be able to prove that you can, you know, demonstrably provide training and education um, and a potential job opportunity for uh, the serviceman or woman um, once they're they're done with that internship. So we well, that, jumped all over that once we heard Yeah. That. Yeah, that's spectacular because I remember when I got out um, you know, even with the, the, the training that I had, uh, I was overseas whenever I got out, not in a combat zone. I don't want to even portray that, that I was in a place like that, but I was overseas in, in Okinawa, Japan. And it was one of the difficult things, especially back in the day when most companies weren't using external email and, and everything was still snail mail uh, or, or phone calls uh, was to try and get a job. So I ended up, you know, when I got out coming back uh, to Indiana, actually, um, and uh, spending, uh, you know, first couple of months, you know, working in the computer department at Sears selling computers uh, while I was trying to uh, apply and, and gain employment. So this would this opportunity you're talking about here is, is spectacular for for military people who are qualified to do that. So that, that, that shortens that time into the uh, into the job market dramatically. Sure. Yeah. And I recommend any of the, the listeners who 
have companies and are in the capacity to uh, leverage uh, leverage this program to to do so, I will try to put in the show notes for this episode uh, some details on how to do so. But yeah, definitely. Um, so so you eventually did land working for um, a insurance company, a, a job working for an insurance company on the on the IT and security side of the house. Yeah. Um, you know, walk, walk me through the next, you know, 10, 10 years of your, your career. Sure. So yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Um, excellent point. What was next? So, you know, this is good. This is good information for people that are just starting out, uh, you know, is, is where do you start out? And, and I know I, I tried, you know, coming out of the military, probably one of the mistakes I made was, Hey, I've got four years of experience in networking. So, you know, give me a network job. And, and I had to kind of humble myself a little bit and, and go back and say, okay, you know, the, the commercial environment doesn't always understand or recognize the military uh, specialties or requirements. And, and, you know, when they see the word cryptology, they think the only thing they're, you're doing is dealing with encryption and whatnot. So I ended up uh, starting out on the help desk, you know, typical support desk type scenario for a healthcare company, health, healthcare IT uh, arm of a Catholic hospital system in the Indianapolis, Indiana area. And uh, I spent about uh, about a year and a half with them, um, just learning and growing, uh, moving from you know first level support up to second level support. And you know, actually, I'm glad that I did because in that scenario, I was exposed to a whole bunch of new things that I was not exposed to in the military. And one of them was just business practices. You know, a lot of people coming out of the military are very rigid and and have a very process driven uh, type of mindset and going into the business, things are a little bit different, even in the healthcare industry. And this was, this is before HIPAA uh, really came into effect as well, which HIPAA has changed a, a little bit uh, of things like that for the, for the healthcare industry. But um, so I worked, uh, I worked on that support desk and I was exposed to mainframes uh, a little bit more than I had been. I'd been exposed to mainframe communication systems, but now I was dealing with mainframe storage and, I uh, got into again the networking side of things with um, with token ring networks and and moving over to uh, strictly IP based uh, type of uh, scenarios that you know allow for you know Ethernet and whatnot. Then you're right, I did move on to uh, an insurance company uh, there, again there in Indianapolis and has uh, workstation support and kind of worked myself up into network support from there. But you know this is this is when my military training and and my commercial training or private training started to converge. And I, I entered into, uh, in the late 90s, entered into what a lot of IT people did, uh, the startup companies for an internet service provider. And it, my, my um, go get them attitude, if you will, my, my uh, I'm going to work this problem until it's done and not worried about, you know, whether I've hit the clock or not, uh, really, really came into play. And so I, I was the technical operations manager for an internet service provider until we sold the company. And then I moved over to uh, the, the Fortune 500 financial industry, working on uh, you know bank and student loan type stuff. And I was uh, exposed to a lot of new uh, new systems there, larger systems, as well as a lot, a lot of larger security requirements. And during the period of time that I was there, from the literally the week before 9/11/2001 um, until uh, October of 20, 2006. Um, we we transitioned in that whole industry from just having to deal with basic financial requirements put forward by the uh, by the SEC or similar type of organizations to having to deal with the aftermath of Enron 
and uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley rules, the GLBA, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, and so on and so forth that started coming into play during those early uh, 1990s. So in that, not only am I being exposed to the security, the true security side of things, and the high ramp up of security products after 9-11, but I'm also being exposed to the compliance side of things and, and um, having some introductions to the law and legal aspects of it as well, which, you know, if you're a security professional, you don't want to shy away from being in the compliance environment. You want to actually embrace that uh, to get that, that additional exposure. So there at that financial institution, I was also um, exposed to the, uh, the concept with, with law enforcement, with uh, forensic investigations uh, and HR investigations. And, um, you know, putting uh, putting together a, a good package that uh, law enforcement can review and actually use instead of just throwing them raw data. And uh, from from there, then I moved into the academic environment that we've talked about earlier and uh, and from the academic environment uh, moved into a short stint with a, a very large insurance company here in central Illinois um, that, uh, again, uh, allowed me to uh, re reinvent or, or reinvent myself a little bit uh, coming out of the academic environment, re recalibrate myself, I guess would be a better word, uh, to bring myself back in tune with some of the compliance and security requirements that uh, that are larger companies were dealing with. And then I got my opportunity to move to where I am now. And uh, I first started, so I, I've been with Databank technically for three and a half years, almost four years on paper, but I was actually part of an acquisition uh, that occurred a year ago now, uh, September of 2017, prior that that company was acquired was uh, Edge Hosting out of Baltimore. And I was uh, I, I was their CISO starting in January 2015, and, and that has been a huge learning experience working with, uh, with FISMA and FedRAMP. Um, readjusting my mindset from looking at uh, corporate security to looking at a security environment that has very clear boundaries on what we can do and what we are responsible for. And that's, that's one of the key things that I've learned coming out of the, uh, out of the corporate environment in, into the space that we're in now with data centers. Awesome. And that's, it's great context for a variety of reasons because I've, I, for one, you know, I look at someone with, the credentials that you have and the background that you have, I'm just kind of baffled and bamboozled as to how someone really gets started in that space and in that industry. Um, I have a <laughs> close personal friend of mine who actually was one of the first people I interviewed on the podcast, uh, Pete Sclafani, who has gone through uh, some education and received some certifications around security and, and uh, ethical hacking as you have. Um, and the, the whole space is just fascinating to me. One of the questions I have though that you mentioned is that you, um, you know, you've shied away from the coding aspect and yet yes. that is a key piece of hacking. So how, how do those two play together? Yeah. So it, it, you're, you, you picked up on a very interesting point. Um, my, my experience has been that um, you can do uh, the, the hacking side of things without doing the, the coding side of things. Um, my uh, my experience has been that the the best hackers are not sole source individual people, uh, but they are teams that go after it. I guarantee you that those folks that are in Eastern Europe that are doing some of the major hacking right now are not sole source people that are running after things 
and going at it. And I think that's probably one of the mis misnomers of the whole hacking industry that it's one guy and uh, and and it's you know one guy sitting in his basement in his mom's basement in a trench coat um, that never gets out. Uh, these guys that do this stuff professionally, whether they're ethical side on the penetration testing or they're on the non-ethical side, uh, these guys are not individual. Even if they are individuals that are sitting in the basement, um, you know, in their trench coats in their mom's basement, uh, the, these guys are still doing a lot of online collaboration and sharing of their scripts and sharing of their experiences, sharing of the information that they collect and going after it. So what I've done with my ethical hacking piece is I've really specialized, specialized on certain aspects of it. So I'm extremely good at social engineering. Got plenty of plenty of sad stories to tell you about, you know, things that we've done from a social engineering perspective to gain physical access to a building. And we know, you know, all of us in IT, regardless of whether you're security or not, that once you gain physical access to something, you own the keys to the kingdom. You know, you can bypass any logical, almost any logical security control if you've got physical access. So Social engineering is one of the things I've become very good at. Uh, network penetration, so that's a build off of my existing network uh, knowledge. Um, I'm extremely good at, at reconnaissance as well, and reconnaissance involves you know going out on the internet and searching for information that that people don't think is there about their companies or about themselves. But reconnaissance also means going and scoping out buildings. And going and scoping out patterns and, and traffic patterns and and people patterns. Um, it may it may involve uh, dropping a thumb drive or USB drive in a certain location, such as in a bathroom stall, and somebody picking it up and taking it. You know, getting somebody to pick it up and take it in and go be curious of what's on it. So this whole eth ethical hacking piece, there's a ton of different components to it. It's not just the coding aspect. So what I would do is do all the things I just told you about. And then I would turn to the, my colleague next to me and say, okay, I've gotten you in. Now have that on the web server. Go, go attack it. Go run with it. Here's all, the here's all the information that you need to attack that. So we work in teams, and that's, that's why it's uh, most successful that way. It's uh, very, very interesting. I ironically just last Friday heard a talk from the CEO of one of the providers that we work with called Vigilant. Um, mm -hmm. It's a security as a service company. Right. Um, and he told a great story about how when you when you come home to your house and you see, uh, you know, the door broken open and you see the glass shattered, you know, instantly you are aware and you know that someone has broken into your house. Uh, you walk in very cautiously and or you just call the cops immediately, which you probably should do um, and kind of scope the situation. But uh, when you come home and everything's closed and locked up tight and you walk in, you assume everything's fine. You know, we have the, the illusion that everything is okay, that everything's fine. Uh, and yet someone could have very easily have broken into your house with a key or a key code, uh, and be hiding somewhere in your house and you have no idea. Right. Um, and absolutely the world of the, of, uh, corporate espionage and, and corporate security, it's a similar type of scenario where, uh, a lot of our the hackers that are breaking into um, companies, they're they're closing the back door and they're they're hiding a lot of the tracks that they may have led, and they could simply be sitting within your organization and in your IT environment, waiting for the appropriate time to strike. Um, Correct. And one of the examples that I heard 
after after this actually just earlier this week um was a, uh, a, a company that had been hacked and they were about to be acquired um and the hacker was just sitting in the environment for months they found out and yeah. waiting for the, ap- the the appropriate time when it was about time to do the transaction and money to be transferred uh an email was sent from the account of the uh, company doing the transaction saying hey we, we you know have new wiring instructions and you know no questions asked and so they changed the wiring instruction information and sent the money for for the M&A deal that's excellent the hackers account right yeah and, that that's right. excellent these, these guys had inside knowledge of what was going on. Yeah, that's exactly. that's 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 not um, you know that's not uh, outside of the the realm of possibility. I mean, if if your if your attacker knows what they're doing and knows what they're after, you know that's that's what's going to happen. And uh, I don't know if you've seen some of the studies or not, but it depends on who's who's doing the study. But uh, the average time uh, for a hacker to have done his or her work and then uh, the, the the gap, if you will, between the point in which they're caught is in between 250 and 300 days, um, and that's that's average. Uh, so you know you're talking you know just the average guy or or gal doing doing the hacking, they're long gone by the time either that or they're sitting in wait, but they're usually long gone uh, by the time that uh, that you get you get you, they're found out, and and that's that's always a challenge, and hopefully your logs are not all long gone too. Yeah, that's it's uh it's an interesting world that we live in today for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other paradigm that I think is is an interesting topic to discuss is how a lot of security professionals and security firms they have become very adept at securing and locking down the traditional methods of attack, um, right? Kind of the known methods of attack, but really the the hardest thing is trying to figure out the the non-traditional methods that people may be trying to enter into an organization and tracking and uh, doing reconnaissance around around those areas, because mm-hmm. um, adept hackers, uh, you know, who tend to net uh, millions of dollars are more than happy to recreate an entire environment, a customer environment or a client environment, not a client, I guess a a, a victim's environment uh, from an IT perspective, so that they can right. just practice right until oh, absolutely, they, yeah. Uh, well, when you think about these these uh, these fishers, spear fishers, and whalers uh, that are out there, um, and if I needed to describe those terms for your audience, be happy to do that. But it, it, those those folks that are out there, a lot of times they're recreating environments anyway uh, to make it look like the the victim is landing on a legitimate page or le- legitimate website in order for them to collect the information uh, that they need to collect. So they they put a lot of time and effort. Into making their their attacks look very very legitimate. So what what are some of the I don't want to say like basic blocking and tackling because I think we all know the basic blocking and tackling. Um, you know, being careful about what you click on, making sure that the email yeah. address that's being sent is actually from the person that it's it says it's being sent by. Um, but what are some of the more creative and advanced methods that companies can put into practice to ensure that they don't get uh you know screwed at the end of the day by someone who's attempting to steal data information money whatever mm-hmm. it might be 
So there, there's a couple of different avenues that one can go there. First of all, I, I highly suggest uh, including some, I don't want to call it artificial, I'll call it augmented intelligence information uh, into your environment um, and, and the technology that uses that information. And what I'm talking about here is there's a plethora of opportunities out there with advanced threat protection type of systems, and, and you can put them on your, on your front end of your email. But what it, a lot of times people will forget that if they uh, if they track or or, or block and tackle uh, the outbound side of things uh, as well, uh, you can cut down even further on the the attacks that are going in. So let's look at a real life scenario. You've got an anti spam system on the front end of your of your email, and it's only going to to capture so much of it. Then you've got a security awareness program on the inside that talks about phishing and spear phishing and whaling and whatnot. And uh, so you've trained your users to a, to a basic degree on, on, you know, finding or, or looking at uh, the, the obvious uh, signs of, of a bad email. You know, it didn't come from the right person, uh, you know, so on and so forth. But if you were to then put a, a, a proxy server, you know, going back, I always say in IT, what's old is new, what's new is old. Um, if you if you put a proxy server, a web filter on the front end or, or something within your next gen firewall that's looking at your outbound traffic and alerting your security operations center or your security team when things go to certain you know certain countries or certain areas or certain criteria, uh, whatever that may be for your that's appropriate for your organization. I know some organizations that would say anything that goes out of the United States, uh, you know they the SOC wants to know about, but you have to define that for your company. But if you put a, a device in there that, that's, that looks at that stuff and, and not from an intrusion perspective um, or, or intrusiveness perspective of, of what your users are doing, but, but a defensive perspective, then you could probably cut down on a, on a lot of what goes on, um, you know, phishing-wise after it's been clicked. I think a lot of people put their effort on the front end of the, uh, of the email systems instead of on on the back end of what happens after it's already been clicked. The other thing I, I think that we need to do uh, is, is a lot of the attacks are going towards executives right now. And, and the terms that are being used now with, with, are the spear phishing and the whaling terms. And what you'll find is the reason, there's a lot of reasons why those attacks are occurring, but one of the biggest reasons is because most executives in large companies, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 type of scenarios, they are not looking, they're not the first person that looks at their email. They have executive assistants that are looking at their email. So we need to be in those C-suite um, offices and developing relationships with the executive assistants as well as the executives and teaching them what to look for um, and also teaching them to think outside of the box. If they get a, if they get an email in, from you know, that looks like it's from their supervisor says transfer the money over here. Nobody that I know of that's in an executive office uh, executive office suite is going to have a problem if their executive assistant does a what what would in essence be a multi-factor authentication by getting up and either make you know going into the office and saying hey did you make this request or picking up the phone and calling or texting them and say at a known number. And saying, did you make this request before I send five million dollars or twenty million dollars or you know hundred million dollars over to this uh, Nigerian king? Um, you know, I want to make sure that you you actually did make this request. I think most, if not all, executives uh, 
would be appreciative of that extra step that's being taken uh, in order to do that. So I like to, I, I, you know, we, we spend so much time on the on the training and the front end of things. I like to go on the back end uh, and use some technology augmented intelligence that will look at what we're doing and then also provide specialized training to high profile targets. It, you brought up a very interesting point that I didn't even think about, but is very true about how most executives don't respond and answer and have direct visibility into, I mean, they have direct visibility, but they tend to have assistants who are managing the day, right. day of their communications. Right. Um, it's a loophole in, the, in that whole uh, system that is, uh, is interesting. Um, so, okay. So let's dig into another interesting question. When I, when I was at QTS, uh, data centers. Right. We we had a team of people that dealt with security and compliance and would work with customers to help them understand uh, what they really needed or did not need as it related to HIPAA or PCI or um, at the at the time it was uh, I don't even remember SSAE sixteen or yep, uh, yep. no SAS seventy yeah. SAS seventy probably in your day it's now the SSAE eighteen and in between was the 16th. So yes. Um, so understood their capacity and their role and just helping to provide education to the customers. Mm -hmm. What, how, how does it relate to your day to day? Like what does your day to day look like as it relates to the experience and the, um, the, the work that you do? Yeah, no, no different. Um, so I have a, I have a team of uh, seven. There's, there's seven of us total. Um, I have some people who, uh, you know that that are better uh, not uh, putting them in front of the customers. You know, instead they're they're more technical ones and zeros type of people. But in my role and some of the more senior roles, my security architect, uh, my my compliance engineer, our job is is a lot of consultation or front end pre sales consultation in understanding what the end goal is for the customer. That's always got to be the first question when you get on with a customer is. What is your end goal here? Um, are, are you frustrated about a situation? Are you trying to reach a resolution to a business problem? Have frankly, have we ticked you off in some way? What, what's the end goal here? What, what's the the root of the problem or or reason for our conversation? And um, and we do a lot of that consultative approach uh, to the, the customers. You know, lots of times you know customers will come to us and say, hey. Um, you know, we've been a customer of yours for years. We've never really had any problems, and that and that's great. But I've got these new requirements that are coming down to me. From I'm a you know I'm a vendor of of Company X, you know Fortune 100 Company X, and I've got all these new requirements. They're they're pushing to me in the security questionnaire. I don't understand them. What do I need to do? How how does how does DataBank fall into answering these questions and so on and so forth? So we sit down. And lots of times I'll sit down with them and have a conversation like you and I are having and say, okay, what do you need to comply with? All right, great. You need to comply with SOX or GLBA or, or HIPAA or PCI. All right, let's talk specifically about what you need to do. And we then talk about boundaries, uh, which you know I, I alluded to in the first part of the conversation, the differences between corporate and data center environments that I've had, I've had to learn and, and frankly had a little bit of a, initially had a little bit of a struggle learning is that in corporate environments, the the corporate CISO is in charge and, and responsible and accountable for the security of the entire organization. Whereas in a data center environment, we have very clear boundaries of what we're responsible for and what the customer is responsible for. 
So that's what I'll do is I'll sit down and I'll educate them on the boundaries and, and explain to them. We're very transparent in it and explaining them why there's boundaries. And then as they're, you know, unfortunately dealing with the shock of, of learning the boundary, then I reach out to them and say, okay, now, even though that's your boundary, I have some expertise. I can help you here and I can guide you here and I can show you what kind of security controls or tools that might be in place. And, you know, certainly not trying to go too much into, uh, you know, specifics of what we provide. But in that process, I can say, okay, this is your current boundary. But if you wanted to, you could expand your boundary by using these additional services and tools that we provide. Granted, you know, that's going to be for an, an additional fee, but you at least can turn around and answer uh, to your your uh, up up chain uh, a little bit better uh, in you know, security questionnaire or security RFP, RFI responses. So it's very, it's a very consultative approach, especially as a CISO. I, I look, I look outward and I look inward. You know, I also still have the responsibilities of maintaining the, the compliance and, and security within my, within my own organization and within, uh, you know, within the, the data center itself, uh, not, not just towards the customers, but the customers as a shared environment. So it's a, it's an interesting little task, but uh, and and it's a it, actually I find the consultative piece as the most fun part of my job on many levels because I get to I get to communicate with people and and especially when I get on the airplane I go out to their offices or go and meet them in our data centers and show them what we have and show them the boundaries and show them what we can do for them um, you know you see them light up and and I guess part of my academic background comes into play there where I teach rather than I teach and instruct rather than um, than point fingers and 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 draw lines, uh, and that's a that's a key piece of it as well. So let's let's run through that scenario. So I'm I'm a and I'll, we'll run through two different scenarios. Um, sure, because they're they're very different. Um, a customer who's purely looking for data center colocation services. Sure. Um, who you know is going to call you as it relates to any one of the different. Uh, audits and compliance that we that we mentioned to include mm -hmm. you know let's say isma um what does that conversation the, where does that line stop because i think it's confusing for a lot of customers as sure. to where that line run through that scenario okay sure so first thing i'll say is that if you're a fisma customer we're having a completely separate or fedramp customer we're having a completely separate conversation than we are with a commercial side of things because the uh, working with the federal government, um, they're much more dictatorial and uh, and prescriptive. I guess is a much nicer term to say. They're very much more prescriptive and and less forgiving. There's less gray area um, when you're talking about those environments. But to run through a uh, a scenario like that, they come to us, they're co-location customer, and they need to be in a highly secured, whether it's HIPAA, PCI. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, they need to have security on their environment. So first thing I'll do is I'll sit down with them and say, okay, what are you putting in here? Let's understand exactly what compliance, um, what compliance stack or stacks are you trying to address here? And many times our HIPAA customers are, are also needing to deal with PCI. So at that point, then we say, okay, we're going to focus on the requirements within those scenario, those those compliance scenarios. And we'll we'll drive towards uh, towards meeting those and showing them how we meet those through our SSA 18. But as I stated earlier, one of the clear things we're going to do is we're going to sit down and say, here's the boundaries of our responsibility and your responsibility. 
And we're going to use whatever regulatory requirement they have to show them. And, I, and I'm deliberately using the word term show, not prove, um, because we're, we're not in an adversarial relationship. We're in a, a cooperative relationship to show them where uh, our responsibilities lie. So in a co-location environment, to, to put it succinctly, our responsibilities end at the, the, the cage, um, the cage door. And we are responsible for the environmental controls, the power controls, the physical security leading up to the cage, and and some aspect of the of the network as as it re, it's re, it's dealing with the uh, meet me rooms, the MMR rooms. Um, but even at that, even at that, sometimes the the customers uh, take a direct handoff uh, from. Many times they take a direct handoff from the. Uh, from the telecom provider, and so we don't even have some responsibility for the uh, for the um, the telecom aspect of it. So we'll we'll clearly show them in these documents uh, where these responsibilities lie, and then we'll also show them uh, where their responsibilities lie in that. But we'll also show them, and, and admittedly, it's a sales piece, uh, but it's a it's also a collaborative piece when we're doing this. Uh, we'll show them where we can help them with other things. So, for example, we have CCTV in our, in, in, as in any data center would. But we have a fairly strict policy at this given point where we do not focus those, uh, those CCTV environments into a customer cage. Real Many quick, customers. Quick, quick. The, yep. the acronym CCTV, what, what is it? Oh, closed circuit TV. Sorry. You know, the, 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 um, the cameras that are up on the uh, up above doors and, and whatnot, video cameras, the CCTV piece. Got you. Sorry. To okay. So we have a, a strict policy that doesn't focus those inside the customer cages because there's customers who don't want uh, things like crash carts uh, that have screens on them to be recorded and the information to possibly be uh, taken off of the CCTV and used. So we will guide them and instruct them on how uh, we can support them with additional CCTV cameras that are focused on, on their environment or that they can bring in theirs. We can act as a consultant uh, for them in uh, you know, various aspects of the cage. You know, for example, do you need tamper-resistant uh, tamper uh, walls? Do you need walls that uh, don't allow people to visually see into the, into the cage? Do you need biometric or just prox card or, or just key access to the cage? Uh, based upon the, uh, the, the regulatory or, or compliance requirement that they've identified as a need for their environment. So, so that's how we do it. We show them uh, using the regulatory environments and, and working through that with them in a collaborative and consultive way. Gotcha. Okay, so let's take it to the next level because I know you guys are very heavily involved now and I guess your background is, is, has always been on the within the um, data bank uh, context with uh, doing hosting and managed hosting. Yes, managed services. Mm -hmm. Very different than the traditional power and space. Yes, it is. It is very different because the boundary completely changes. So this is where you start getting into terms that people are probably familiar with, with uh, IaaS, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, PaaS, or software as a service. So those those terms really don't apply in a co-location environment, but they do in in the managed services and hosting space, if you will. So 
in that space, again, you know, we use the same type of approach, but we just go deeper into the stack. We're very consultative. We say, okay, do you want IaaS or do you want PaaS? Because we, we actually don't do any SaaS environment right now, the, the application side of things. We allow, you know, that we partner with uh, integrators and SaaS providers to come and place their, their, their applications on top of our PaaS and IaaS environment. So what we'll do again is we'll sit down and show them uh, you know, based upon the regulatory requirements that they've identified and walk them through each of the security controls that need to be in place. So the the number of security controls, the amount that, that has to be applied that data bank would be responsible for uh, completely changes. You know, we, we left it off at the uh, the physical environmental piece um, for the most part under the and the personnel side of things underneath the colo. But in this space, you know, if you use NIST 800-53, as as a guide for a security methodology and you're at the moderate level you got 325 security controls that you can can look at and apply um you know we we show them through a control implementation summary exactly how we apply them and what is their responsibility on a on a matrix and we we explain to them says okay this particular tool here does this and meets this requirement, and this particular tool over here uh, does X, and it meets that requirement. So in a real-world scenario, for example, a customer has to have a web application firewall on their on their environment. So we show them that a product, for example, just pulling one off the top of my head, like Cloudflare, will meet the web application firewall requirement of PCI, and we can apply that to their environment, and it will sit right here in 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 that network stack. Um, you know, we may have to apply an, an intrusion protection system, in, and we would show them on a on a um, uh, you know the, the the stack again where where that's applied and and exactly which uh, requirement is being met by that. The other thing we're very transparent with in, in both sides, but especially on the managed services side, is providing our SSA E18, SOC 1, SOC 2, our PCI uh, report on compliance, the ROC, as well as our HIPAA evaluations and audits um, to, our, to our customers or pre-sales customers that are under NDA. So they get a very clear understanding from the description sections of those documents what we provide and, and what they need to provide um, in the environment. We actually walk them through uh, these various documents instead of just handing them over and say, you know, go at it. You know, we we walk them through that process. We believe an educated customer is going to be a better customer. It's going to be a customer that sticks around with us a lot longer um, because they feel like they're being taken care of um, and and they feel like that we are a partner in this instead of a just simply a a business service provider. Um, so we, we'll, we'll go through those processes. Uh, it, it does take some some time to do that, um, and it's you know usually part of the sales cycle. And then again, on an annual basis, many of the especially the the financial services industry, they'll be presenting to us uh, security questionnaires uh, to comply with SOX and, and GLBA and, and other other compliance requirements. And we will complete those, or or we will offer them. Um, a cloud controlled matrix that already exists that answers a lot of those questions for them. And so, you know, again, the, just the transparency in what we do for them and educating them, educating them on what we do for them allows them to understand and not get frustrated when their audit comes around and they're thinking, 
that we should be doing something. And unfortunately, when I first started doing this, uh, one of the things I kept running into until I took this consultative approach was, especially on the HIPAA side, was uh, small startup companies coming into our hosting environment, our managed services environment, and thinking that we were a complete turnkey solution uh, for uh, for HIPAA. Um, I, one one quick story on that is I I got on the got on the phone with a with a gentleman at a, at a, an existing customer. His audit was coming around. He kept telling his auditors, "Well, you know, it's it's out there. Go talk to go talk to them, uh, and it's you know it's their responsibility." And the, the auditors kept saying, "No, it's your responsibility. You still own the data, so on and so forth." And so he decided that he was going to get his auditors on the phone, his lawyer on the phone, and himself on the phone with us. And he was pretty upset about this time, and so I, I walked him through. Uh, these uh, these security controls, and I actually told him, said, you know, not not trying to be rude, sir, but do you think we're some sort of turnkey solution? I mean, you still own this data; you're still responsible for it, and and here's why in in these various uh, you know security uh, compliance requirements. And and he was like, yes, absolutely, you're responsible for this. I've transferred it all to you. And he actually used those words. And his lawyer immediately stopped him and said. You know, on the phone with us and with his auditor actually said, you know, sir, um, hate to tell you this, but the CISO over there at, uh, at Edge Hosting, and it was at Edge Hosting at that time, it's now Data Bank, but uh, said, yeah, he's 100% right, and I think we need to take a step back and, and look at what your perception versus reality of the, of the compliance is. And that was a real eye-opener for me uh, because I, I was fairly new uh, within six months of, of coming on board and, and seeing our customers believing that. And I took the opportunity to use that to go back and retrain our salespeople, reset the expectations within our own organization saying, no, um, you know, our customers need to know that these cloud systems and, and now the co-location systems are not turnkey risk transference type of scenarios, but they are, they are partnerships. Um, they they do reduce costs. They do reduce uh, you know IT staff and and IT spend within companies. But they are never ever a turnkey risk transference where you know customer is no longer responsible for the scenario um, that some customers believe they are. I think that's a huge point that uh, people who are listening should take note of and uh, kind of start discussions internally within their own organizations. Cause I think, you know, unfortunately from a marketing perspective, the, the most marketing organizations within those types of organ, uh, hosting providers and data center providers um, and cloud service providers don't fully understand that reality. That's correct. Yeah, and I, I would say that's partly, you know, partly a result of over aggressive or, or over eager uh, marketing people. But I think that's uh, I, I I took the responsibility, and I think it's the responsibility of the CISO to stand in and have relationships with his or her marketing uh, directors and and sales uh, mark, sales teams to make sure that they're educated on what they're really selling um, and not overselling or 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 you know getting customers into a situation that they have to pay for. Um, in a sense of fines or or failed audits uh, at a later point, because those things will kill a business. Fines and and failed audits will kill a small business, especially. So, what are some of the other gotchas um, that that companies may not be aware of, or or mm-hmm. um, 
think there's some disinformation or misinformation in the market about as it relates to uh, hosting and security. Sure. So the the, the turnkeys, the, the turnkey and risk transference are probably the biggest ones. Um, the other gotchas you have to look at is um, your contracts uh, and and vendor requirements. So a a data center or hosting provider, uh, managed services provider, is legitimately going to protect their own organization by placing language in the contracts that limit uh, their liability and responsibility in situations. Um, and you as the uh, as the customer of that supplier um, so you as the as the data owner um, to use some of the gdpr uh, the the european general data privacy rule um, and and other types of specifications you as the data owner um, will always retain ownership of that data and ultimately be responsible for it so you need to identify in your contract in your msa uh, what it is that you're uh, expecting in regards to the data. Um, a lot of people actually don't look at the, the data per se. They're looking at a, a colo or a managed services provider as a bunch of hardware and software. Um, but a lot of times people forget about that data aspect, and that's really where the value is uh, in, in a hacker's perspective uh, of what's, um, what's out there in a cloud or colo environment is is the data that uh, that's out there. So you need to need to make sure that you first of all retain ownership of the data and that you keep in mind that you're responsible for protection of the data. Um, the other thing I think that's a gotcha to some degree is the fact it, it kind of falls in line with the turnkey aspect but from a different perspective. And that is that a, a lot of companies uh, feel like even if they have a good partnership that they don't have to monitor uh, their service provider. Um, now we we provide a and, and a lot of companies do this as well a very informative and transparent uh, customer portal and if if you're not in there looking at your uh, IPS the intrusion protection system logs you know what's attacking your systems uh, if you're not in there looking at the health and wealth of your systems if you're not in there looking at at the various events that are coming up on the monitoring or conducting the access control list reviews to find out who actually has access to your systems all of this boiled down to what's called a conmon or continuous monitoring program uh, then, to, to put it bluntly, shame on you. Um, this is the part that, as the data owner, you still have a lot of responsibilities. You need to be checking up on your service provider because, you know, a lot of these service providers, you know, ourselves and, and you know, other companies, Rackspace, whomever else out there, they've got thousands of customers. And we don't necessarily know um, what data is on your systems, and but you do. And so you need to have your lens on uh, protecting your own data and looking at the reports and such that are available to you through the portal and asking for more reports if they're not sufficient to meet your continuous monitoring program. So, you know, from that, that turnkey perspective, it doesn't mean you don't have to do a continuous monitoring program. It means you should do it on steroids because you're relying upon a, a service provider to maintain your business. So, you know, think about it. Are, are you willing to turn your, you know, turn your business over to to a complete stranger um, and, and their, you know, the success and failure of that. So those are some gotchas, I would say. What, what can companies do that are, you know, SMBs or even mid, mid-level enterprise who can't afford and or really don't need someone in a full-time capacity 
mm-hmm. in that CISO or, or chief security officer role yep. uh, who would be able to do those types of assessments uh, for a company and, and monitoring? Like what, what options do those companies have? Well, there's a couple of options, but one of the things you have to understand, first of all, is that if you don't have a CISO or somebody to do that, it's probably about time to get one um, because there are laws being uh, enacted in individual states in the United States. Uh, Currently, New York is the leader in this that requires certain industries, in New York's case, it's financial industry, to have someone designated as a CISO or that's responsible for that continuous monitoring process that has a legitimate background and education that can do that. So that comes back then to what is, you know, to answer your specific question, there's a burgeoning industry right now in the security as a service environment called CISO as a service. And um, people like me, uh, I, I personally don't do this, but I know that other other people do. Um, some, they, they moonlight as uh, CISOs of service. So they have their primary job during the day and then for you know 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week, whatever, in the evenings or on the weekends, they'll review these reports for SMBs and, and other companies and fill that role as the CISO, uh, providing board reports, providing information back into the IT directors or the, uh, the CEOs or, or whatever, um, whatever level they've been directed to, uh, to, to let those people know uh, what's going on in their environment, and w- what recommendations that CISO as a service has for making their environment secure. That is a huge uh, new, uh, I don't want to call it cottage, but uh, it's its a new industry that's popping up predominantly as a result of the, the New York um, law that, that has come into play, and some rumors or, or realities of similar laws coming into play in other in other parts of the United States, the other the other uh, piece that's kind of directing that is the uh, the European General Data Privacy Rule, the GDPR, uh, directs that there is a an actual um, what they call DPO, uh, Data Privacy Officer, and that person has to have a level of education as well. So that you can see the writing on the wall that if you don't have someone that's already doing this, find somebody that can. And if you have some time to prepare for this, and you don't want to do a CISO as a service at you know, $250, $300 an hour, which you know, it's kind of at the same rate as a lawyer or slightly less, uh, then you should probably start training uh, one of your longtime uh, you know, solid IT people as a, um, as a secondary or, or, or uh, tertiary duty uh, to their, their primary functions of IT so that they can uh, review those reports for you. Um, it's I, I think it's almost becoming a requirement um, in our industry uh, that uh, that they that the customer have somebody on their side that can do this for them and is their advocate as well. And, and for what it's worth, we've identified that pretty early on on our end and have started to develop the relationships with those uh, CISO as a service, um, you know, outsourced organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, leveraging some of the partners through the microcorp relationship that we have, uh, and some other folks that we're just meeting in the industry, and so we we, we have a t- uh, a stable of of such individuals in different regions across the country who can step in and coach customers right. and, and guide customers through that process. Because as you're saying, it's becoming a a requirement um, for so many different companies. Exactly. So how then? Because we've discussed. Um, you know, the, the human element of having someone uh, review contracts and agreements, but there's also a big piece of having a firm uh, do, do 
penetration testing and, and whatnot mm-hmm. within an organization. Um, what has been your experience with that and how, you know, for those who are listening, can you walk them through what that engagement, you know, the, the red hat or the red team type of testing, like what that is and why that's important and relevant for, for companies? Sure. So let's tackle what it is first. What is a penetration test? Because there's a lot of uh, misnomers out there of what it is. A lot of people think it's a vulnerability scan. Um, Vulnerability scanning or vulnerability assessments are not penetration testing. Uh, Penetration testing, well, vulnerability scanning or vulnerability uh, testing is very specific, uh, usually using some sort of tool against a particular application or or function. Uh, the penetration testing is a much more holistic piece. Uh, the penetration testing usually is is acting as a black hat or a or a, a gray hat type of scenario. And just to describe those very quickly, your black hats are those that come in with absolutely no knowledge of your environment. You've hired them. They come in no knowledge of their, your environment. They do all of the reconnaissance and scoping, just like a hacker would do, as they're trying to you know getting ready to target you. Uh, and then they attack your your systems without any knowledge of user IDs, passwords, network maps, or anything along those lines. And they 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 map it out. They 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 attack you just like um, you know the bad guys would. The gray hats are very similar, but they've been given some information by you. Maybe they've been given a network map. Maybe they've been given some basic reconnaissance to say, yeah, um, we only want you to uh, attack within this boundary of this space here. Then you have the white hat hackers, which have basically been given everything. Um, you know, they've been given user IDs and passwords, and and they're really just snooping around in your network to see if they can find anything. So, a penetration test is is going to encompass um, much more than a vulnerability assessment, and is typically going to act like a hacker. They're going to they're they're going to uh, attack your systems to the point in, in which they almost fail uh, and they almost come down. Some of them accidentally go overboard and they're not supposed to. Um, and we could probably have an entire podcast on on the the whole art of penetration testing and what you should do as a as a company uh, in contracting them and monitoring them during the process. But um, the, these guys are, are acting as hackers and, and trying to get into your systems from a holistic approach, doing the reconnaissance and so on and so forth. So, so the question then is, is why do you need to do this? Uh, and especially if you were to go in and look at the price tag on these things, they're, they're in the range of uh, twenty-five dollars to $40,000 a year, depending on who you select and what your scope and boundary is. Uh, well, the reason you have to is is because most of the regulatory requirements state that you have to. In fact, PCI, uh, the Data Security Standards, or PCI DSS, requires you to do a penetration test twice a year if you are um, in you know taking credit cards and in, in, in that uh, in that realm. So you know we have the the report of compliance from PCI that identifies that we do that uh, a couple of times a year in in compliance with that and. One of the things we have to understand in a data center environment, um, as you read those, as a customer, as you read those um, those penetration tests, is you have to understand the scope of the penetration test that was conducted. Just because your service provider uh, has conducted the penetration test doesn't mean you, as the as the company that's processing credit cards, uh, can rely upon that uh, penetration test as, as covering your environment. This goes back to that consultative approach we talked about earlier and the boundaries uh, that are involved. Most, most co-location and most managed services providers 
will set the boundaries uh, to be the shared network environment, the physical and environmental securities, and, and similar types of functions. So, for example, in our type of environment, uh, on the managed services side, we would say that we, we do a penetration test against our routers, switches, firewalls, intrusion protection system, um, and that's on the shared side of that, and then and then end it at that. Anything that's behind that, such as the, the operating system that your application is running on, your application itself, any type of appliance devices that you put with inside your boundary network, that would be your responsibility as a customer uh, to conduct a penetration test against. And, and you, you need to follow those compliance uh, requirements as well. So that's one that's one key uh, piece with the penetration testing is is identifying and understanding the scope in which your your provider your service provider your supplier has done their penetration testing, and um, and you know from our perspective as a provider of managed services, you also need to reach out to us as the customer and say okay what can I do in my network that's acceptable for penetration testing I would say. 100% of the service providers out there are going to tell you you cannot do a penetration test against a shared environment device. So again, the routers, the switches, the firewalls, the IPS, uh, for example, that we already conduct our penetration test against would be out of bounds for your testing environment. And we, again, are very transparent. So we provide you a document that you can provide your pen tester and say, this is what you can and can't do, and here's the numbers to call, the phone numbers to call in case you do something wrong or you run into a, a, an issue. Um, so you, you need to scope it out from that perspective and know what you can and can't do. And then um, when you do contract with, with a pen tester, you need to make sure that they are in contact with the security team at your, at your supplier and provider uh, so that if something is, does go wrong, if there is an outage, if there is uh, a, a um, an attack that's going on, we're not going to block it. Uh, we're not going to block your pen tester coming in. We're going to allow them to bypass uh, the security so they can adequately test your environment, um, or so that we you know that we know uh, that you know that that the te the pen test is going on. So if there's a, an outage on your web server, uh, we can make the phone call to you instead of trying to restore your your web server to service. Um, and, and so working collaborative on that pen testing is important and meeting the regulatory requirements, knowing your regulatory requirements on that and the boundaries, again, is a very important piece to this. That's awesome. And that's great, great information. Again, for those who are listening, I hope they're uh, taking notes. Um, if not, hit and, the rewind button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And hit pause and, and, and keep going back and back. I know I personally am going to be doing the exact same thing and, and forcing my uh, both the people that work with me and uh, all my partners and whatnot to, to listen to this episode to for them to get educated on all this process. Um, as much as I've been through and in and around these deals, um, I'm learning a ton just through this conversation. So I appreciate mm -hmm. all the knowledge dropping here. Um, one of the other components that I think is also misunderstood that I'd love to get your feedback on is the BAA. Um, mm, it, yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk about what is the BAA and how does that relate and apply to to what we do. Okay, great. So first of all, if you don't deal with uh, health information and, and HIPAA data, this is where you can hit the fast forward button because it really the BAA only applies 
to those people that deal with health information, uh, EPHI, uh, Electronic Protected Health Information, that, that fall underneath the HIPAA regulations. So the first thing we have to understand and remind ourselves is that HIPAA is a law. Unlike PCI, uh, DSS, or some of the other compliance requirements out there, this is a law that's managed, monitored, and maintained by the federal government, in, in particular the, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. And when there's a fine levied, when there's an investigation that goes on, it is that department, that agency, that is leveraging the fines, that is collecting the fines, that is uh, involved in that process. So that you need to understand that first of all. Secondly, to answer specifically, what in the world is a BAA? It's a business. So, so the the BAA is a um, is a piece of that that law that allows the allows the the company that holds the the EPHI to involve service providers or suppliers in the in the collection and processing of that um, in in that uh, electronic health or, or other types of health data. So, it the BAA is a um, is, is a legal document that needs to be attached to your MSA, uh, your master service agreement. And it is something that uh, describes specifically how the data will be handled, how it will be managed, how investigations will go, how forensic investigations will go in the event that there is a security incident or breach. Now, one of the things you need to make sure that you have in that BAA or business associate agreement is the definition of an incident and a breach. And, and this is an area where I could tell you a couple stories on as well if we had time, but there is a significant difference between an incident and a breach. These are defined within the NIST or, or the National Institutes of Science and Technology's documents. What is a difference between a, a, a security event, a security incident, and a security breach? And a breach is a legal term that triggers a whole bunch of, of requirements, including notifications to customers and notifications to agencies. So if you can classify an event only as a security incident, uh, then it is a situation where you can handle it internally and, and, and take care of it. But if it, if it has to be classified as a breach, then you start getting into those notifications and fines and, and so on and so forth. So the BAA governs that all legally. And I would highly recommend that if you have to deal with a BAA, that you have a lawyer involved who understands uh, the, the whole HIPAA environment and BAA, because there's a lot of lawyers out there that will look at a BAA strictly as a legal document and not know anything about HIPAA and get it wrong. There's actually a, a template of a BAA out on uh, the Department of Health and Human Services website, and you can use that template uh, and modify it for your organization um, to to make sure that you're in compliance uh, with, with the with that requirement. So, the the BAA or the Business Associate Agreement uh, again is a is a legal document, and you need to have lawyers involved in it. You certainly need to have your security people involved in it as well. Um, but you need to make sure that if you have to have a BAA, that uh, that you have the the legal team sign off on it first. So, does DataBank currently sign BAAs? We do. Um, it's a le it's, it is a law legal requirement that we sign BAAs. So if there is a, a customer coming to us that is a health information company or, or a company that, that handles healthcare data, they are required by law uh, to have us sign a BAA, which notifies us that A, the data exists 
and it's there, and it and it is a, a legal agreement between the two of us uh, how we're going to handle that data and handle the situations that are associated with that data. So absolutely, in fact, if somebody refuses to sign a BAA, that should at least be a very very uh, yellow flag for you, if not a red flag, as to um, as to how that company operates. That that again is some place where you know you're dealing with people that may not understand. Uh, what they have to do if they're refusing to sign a BAA. So we've come across situations where data center providers will refuse to sign the BAA uh, yep. under the uh, um, logic that because they don't manage the data or have access to the data, uh, they are not uh, in need to be compliant with the BAA. What? What? How does that play? Well. How does that play? So you're really asking, what's my response to that? I would I would turn towards the compliance regulation and say, it doesn't matter whether you, as a data center provider, are are actually handling that data uh, in you know itself. Uh, you are somehow involved in the processing of that data, whether you're just providing the cage, or 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 not, uh, if, you, if you're going on to the managed services side of things and, and going farther into the environment that we discussed earlier, even if you're just providing the cage, the co-location cage where it sits, you are providing the physical security controls, the environmental security controls, and the, the personnel security controls of the people that are working and managing uh, that environment. Um, you are providing those to the healthcare provider. Uh, so you still have some responsibility for the processing side of that business associate agreement. Now, I'm sure there's probably plenty of lawyers and plenty of people out there that would would probably uh, argue with me or, or argue with anybody on that one because there's plenty of folks out there that, that do re- refuse to sign a BAA. But uh, my advice for years uh, since HIPAA really came into play from many lawyers has been and, and not just within the data center environment, but also within corporate America, that if we are collecting or processing or in any way holding um, protected health information, whether it's paper copy or electronic, uh, that we should protect ourselves, at minimum protect ourselves, by signing a BAA. Um, and you know that BAA could even say very explicitly, we are only providing you know, physical security piece of this, all other data security type of scenarios is the responsibility of the customer. But it's still a a legal document, a line in the sand that says we are responsible for X and you are responsible for Y. And it, it will it will protect you as the data center provider. Makes a ton of sense. And it's a uh, discussion that we have had to have a number of times over the years and seen uh, customers who uh, know the story that you just told try to explain this to the data center providers who don't have that background uh, or attorneys that are familiar with it, just simply refuse to uh, to comply and sign it and say that it's unnecessary. And as a result, the, the client simply refuses to do business with the provider. So if you're a yeah. provider listening or you work for a provider uh, that it has a, a stance to refuse to sign BAAs, I would highly recommend you guys yeah. um, speak with some attorneys who are familiar and, and get on board with exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. And what I would do is I would tell them if they're going to go talk to an attorney, A, get an attorney that knows knows HIPAA or is at least open-minded um, to reading the law and fo- have them focus in on subpart C, um, number 
uh, legal number 160.310, which is entitled the responsibility of covered entities and business associates. And it's, uh, you know, get, get deep. I can tell you it's on page 20 of the HHS, uh, you know, combined um, HIPAA law uh, publication that they have out there. And so 160.310 of subpart C is where that discussion occurs. Have your lawyer review that. Um, if they still make a determination that you don't have a BAA, then at least you've done your risk due diligence on it. And um, either that or get another lawyer, one of the two. <laughs> so clearly I, I hit uh, a topic there with the BAA that you probably have to deal with on a quasi-regular basis. Are there any yes. other are there any other topics similar to the BAA that I haven't covered or that we haven't covered that we that we want or should cover for our listeners? Oh, there's a, there, there's there's a ton of topics. Um, I think probably one that is uh, is becoming more prevalent, uh, at least from our side of things, is is uh, how to deal with uh, federal government fed, uh, federal government data and the differences between FISMA and FedRAMP. Of course, you can you can have a whole podcast topic on those as well, um, because a lot of the agencies, especially you know, just today, as a matter of fact, I believe the uh, the White House issued um, a brand new first time in 15 years, I believe, a, a, a cybersecurity strategy. And uh, you know, today on the 21st of September, they issued that. And um, and there's a lot more responsibilities on the agency CIO. So if you deal with um, a federal agency in any way, um, you know, I have a customer who, in the past, has never had to deal with FedRAMP because they're you know like third down the line, if you will, away from an agency that, in fact, is Health and Human Services that provides them some data so that they can. Uh, they, they can go out and, and, and literally help people. It's kind of a not-for-profit type agency and go out and help people in, in, uh, in the Northeast. And um, they, uh, they, they recently found out, you know, it's, it's an SMB not-for-profit that they have to comply with FedRAMP. They don't even know what FedRAMP is, and they're coming to us saying, hey, uh, how can you help us here? What, what can we do? So, you know, again, it's a, it's a, it, it's, that's probably a long discussion, a long topic, but I would say that if you're doing, doing any work whatsoever with the federal government, you better educate yourself on what FedRAMP is, the Federal Risk Assessment Management Program, and because at some point in your contract renewal process or contracting process, it will come up. And uh, make sure that the providers that you have are are well versed on it as well. It is, uh, as with anything with the government, it's very document heavy, uh, and it is not easy to do. Um, you know, the the result is usually with the FedRAMP to gain an authority to operate. Um, you know, you actually have a document that's signed off by the agency that says you have the authority to operate with the federal government data, with that agency's data. And, um, you know, our particular uh, set of documents is about 16 or 17 documents. It's over 3,000 pages long that describe how our system operates and how we will in turn operate that system uh, on behalf of the federal government. So, um, it, it's a daunting task. I uh, don't want to scare you, but uh, it is something that uh, that you should get a specialist involved in. So DataBank currently does provide a security as a service offering. Yes. Um, what, what are, I think we briefly discussed this early on in the conversation, but where where's the line in the sand as we've been kind of discussing between where mm -hmm. your uh, responsibilities and roles starts or stops and the clients starts and stops sure so security as a service at, at databank is um i don't want to exactly call it a la carte but it, it has some a la carte components to it you know we we have some prescribed 
uh, some 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 prescribed um, boundaries uh, that we can we can provide for you. But we've also we also have the capability of providing various tools that we use a la carte. So one of the boundaries, for example, would be in the co-location space. Customer comes to us and says, we've got this whole HIPAA thing covered. Um, here's our BAA. Great, you signed it. Um, but the only thing we don't have covered is, for example, a, a file integrity monitoring product. Great, Mr. Customer. Guess what? I've got that for you. Um, you can contract just that specific piece above and beyond your prescribed boundary of the of the um, the co-location you know cage if you will um, so in our managed services side we have the prescribed boundaries that include our web application firewall our intrusion protection system our, our ddos protection system uh, the file integrity monitoring the the, the uh, log monitoring and, and collection and and what we call the seam system um, we have the if I mentioned the web application firewall, we have antivirus and so on and so forth. Um, all these pieces uh, that that are needed in order to demonstrate compliance and protection. Keep in mind, a lot of people see compliance as a checkbox scenario, and at, at, at Data Bank, we don't see it as a checkbox. We see it as as a way for you to to continue uh, to to earn money, as a way for us to continue to earn money, and as a as a way for you to demonstrate integrity in your business. A lot of people see that checkbox and say, okay, yes, uh, I do this, I do this, I do this, I got that web application firewall, and yet they still get hacked and they still get attacked. And and every time you get hacked and every time you get attacked, even if you don't know it, it's costing you money, it's costing you reputation, integrity of your business, because it's going to hit the news somewhere, even if you live in a little bitty town of 15,000 like I do. Um, somebody out there in the news media, even if it's on social media, is going to publish publish that hey you know your your their data was compromised in in your application so don't look at it as a check mark use it you, you look at it as a partnership tell us what you need and we can provide that for you um, like I said we we have the the depth and the knowledge the breadth of uh, of tools available to us um, to uh, to work with you awesome so one of the last uh, things I want to discuss with you is around. Uh, so I, I, I've mentioned on prior podcasts, and I think some of our listeners who listen regularly know about the work that I've done with InfraGuard and some of the meetings mm -hmm. that I've been part of, and um, they're absolutely mind blowing, fascinating to me, and have added a whole new layer of complexity and. Um, uh, I don't even know what the right word is. I, I don't want to use the word fear. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, so, I, I understand. I understand where you're going with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we just live in a day and age where our our government is almost um, limited at its ability to even protect Americans, and it goes right back to you know you mentioned this um, the new cybersecurity strategy that. Uh, President Trump has just dropped, which is the first that's come out in 15 years, which, you know, God knows it's needed. Hopefully we can, uh, I'd love to dig into this and I will be digging into this as soon as we get off this call. Um, right. So I can see exactly what the strategy is. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, right? Because we have so many rule, we have the rule of law and there are things that are and are not illegal. Um, a lot of, a lot of the cyber uh, actors and cyber uh, hackers around the world who are um, state actors or even non-state actors and other governments 
um, really are not limited by those laws that limit a lot of what our our businesses and our our own hackers here in America can or can't do. Um, and it's just I kind of view this as like a losing battle. Like I don't see how we as Americans and businesses in America can stand up and even protect ourselves against a threat that does not have the same limitations that we have. Um, and it's uh, it's something that literally does keep me up at night as I kind of think through what the future may hold, uh, given that reality and that no data online is secure or private. Um, at the end of the day, if someone truly wants to get access to your business, um, it's something like physical security, where if someone wants me dead, they will invest enough money to figure out where I am at any given time. And despite the collateral damage that may be caused, you know, drop, drop a nuke or <laughs> drop a bomb from above <laughs> um, and strike me dead. And it's similar from a cybersecurity perspective, where if, if a company is a target, uh, you can build a lot of walls and you can you know hide yourself deep in a bunker um but you still can and will be found and um you know and exploited in some capacity what, sure. what are your general thoughts like how given what you know and and the background that you have and the work that you do how do you sleep at night <laughs> you, you see the toothpicks trying to keep my eyes open right now um so yeah no it, it, it's um it, it's a difficult thing um to to deal with with our society you know laws are so there's two, there's two aspects of laws and, and one of them is that you know laws are there to keep honest people honest um, or, or to define an ethical boundary where honest people choose not to cross it and those that those that are on the other side of that line are always going to cross it uh, they're, they're always going to do what they can to um, you know, to to go beyond and, and exploit that. Um, so there's that aspect of it. The other the other strange little aspect of this cyber world is that, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an argument, one who argues that, you know, the GDPR doesn't apply to the United States, where if you're entirely a U.S. company with all with all responsibility to U.S. law, then you're you, you're not a uh, you know, responsible to the GDPR, the European Union uh, General Data Privacy Rule. I know that's not a that's not a uh, an opinion that's shared by some lawyers, and I know it's not an opinion that's shared by uh, very many people in the European Union because I've seen them <laughs> I've seen them uh, and engaged in conversations with them um, at conferences about the subject matter. But the point there is that um, you know laws are specific to countries and boundaries of countries, whereas Cyber has no boundaries, and that's a challenge that we're going to have to overcome, um, even within the United States, where we have independent laws within our own state boundaries that that strengthen security or or don't, depending on where you live or where you're from. You know, the new California privacy law, which again is a whole nother you know privacy and privacy law in California is a whole nother uh, topic of a podcast probably, but. Um, you know that law was enacted, and it's not applicable to the other 49 states, or or I think it's four or five territories that include the uh, you know that are included in the United States um, legal system. So, you know it, the the boundary issue of laws is is a big challenge because the United States can can enact a an anti-hacking law that has no application whatsoever in somewhere like Belarus, right? 
And since we uh, we don't have the best of relations with some countries out there, or, or no relation with some countries out there, the, the hackers can hide within those countries and uh, and and attack from those countries, either with or without the blessing of those leaders of those countries, and never have to fear prosecution um, because they're outside of the legal boundary of the United States or the legal boundary of Europe. If you're if you happen to be in in Europe or even Asia, um, so, you know, Japan, for example. Um, has their own laws that uh, that don't apply to me here in the United States. Um, so, so the the whole the whole legal aspect of things is is uh, something that actually keeps me up at night a little bit uh, from the perspective that where I'm operating, I'm operating in an environment that doesn't have any boundaries, but I'm bound uh, by legal requirements of the the piece of ground um, that I'm on. So that's one aspect. So you you, you mentioned InfraGuard and and the whole attacker piece. So first of all, if you are not or or you you have security people in your organization that are not part of InfraGuard, um, I would a recommend that they become part of InfraGuard, and 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 b uh, be prepared to calm them down coming back from some of the InfraGuard uh, discussions. Um, because so if you're not familiar with InfraGuard, uh, what InfraGuard is is a collaboration or, or a, a public-facing um, aspect of the Federal Bureau, Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, in they're trying to collaborate with various industries, not just the cyber or IT industry, but they have healthcare, they have um, power industry, they have rail industry, transportation industries, and, and uh, specialized groups. So what they do is they try and collaborate with those environments to share information that's not classified but may not necessarily be public. Uh, example of something that InfraGuard shared with me. I sat through a presentation about four or five months ago about the October 1 uh, Las Vegas shooting, uh, mass shooting that, that occurred uh, l- last year in 2017. It was presented by the, the head special agent um, in charge of the Las Vegas office, and there, were, there was authorized um, information that was provided to me inside that as a training function uh, so that I could go back and put active shooter uh, plans in place and and learn from the situation that occurred out there. So that's the kind of valuable information that InfraGuard provides. But at the flip side of that, if if the person you send to that or it's part of InfraGuard has a tendency to um, be a little bit more on the uh, the, the squeamish side or, or 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 be a little bit more on a, a conspiracy side, uh, you, you might want to make sure you calm them down coming back because one of the things that I've I've enjoyed getting out of InfraGuard presentations is the raw data, and I was able to, as part of that presentation on Las Vegas, I was able to listen in on the recorded uh, police chatter uh, back and forth as they were trying to suppress the um, the shooter in that event you know it's it's raw information it has to be has to be processed in a particular way um, and it has to be taken in in the context in which it's being presented so you know make sure the people you send to the infraguard piece are you know are 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 good solid people um, and uh, and that they can they can process that information but it's great information that comes out of it um, that will help you protect your environment because the other piece that comes out of InfraGuard is developing relationships with FBI agents so that when, notice I said when, not if, uh, your environment is attacked, 
uh, by either a nation state slash ad, you know, APT, an advanced uh, advanced uh, type of um, type of threat out there that is hard to hard to defend against. Um, the FBI can come in and help you defend against that, and they can leverage their resources. Uh, to help you. They can also provide you information, again, up to but not including classified information that could help you uh, dig into something that you may need to dig into. And I'll give you an example of that. I had an FBI agent call me up about two years ago. He said, okay, some of this information is coming from classified sources. I can't tell you what the, the sources are. I can tell you um, what I only what I can tell you. Uh, you need to go to this particular website over here that you're, you know, that we are, our company was hosting, and you need to run some vulnerability scans against that and go in there and change the passwords because it has been compromised. It's come up in, in classified data somewhere, and so that helped us, uh, you know, go to that site and secure that site and work with our customer who had you know, left that site, uh, you know, in a, it was a, a code related issue in a, a vulnerable state uh, so that we can, we could close that up and, uh, and remove that type of thing. So, you know, the FBI and, and especially through InfraGuard and the relationships you develop there are wonderful opportunities um, to, to deal with it. Um, so I guess my final piece on, on that whole thing is that we need to be realistic uh, as CISOs, as security practitioners, that as CISOs and security practitioners of of, of companies, whether they're Fortune 100, 500s, or if they're you know small, uh, medium-sized businesses, the SMBs, there are things that we can't protect against. Um, you know, I could show you on my IPS uh, uh, three or four years ago. Um, it's been it's been more than that now because I know I correlated with uh, with an event. I'll, I'll describe it here in a moment. Um, about about four years ago, three and a half years ago, I detected some interesting activity coming from a from china uh, to be frank about it and um we were able to defend against it but you could tell that they were you know they were really really attacking really coming in after stuff um and if they had ramped it up uh, too much more it would have been one of those situations where i would have called the called in the fbi to get um you know either uh, military or or other types of grade of of assistance in the scenario but looking at the of that situation six months, eight months after that occurred, I realized that the attacks were coming in at the same time that the Office of uh, Private – no, it's not privacy um, – the OPM attacks that were occurring in Washington that, that, uh, that caused a whole bunch of security clearances to be breached. Um, the same time that the attacks were going into uh, Anthem, uh, the Anthem health insurer, um, they were occurring. The, the the attacks that I saw on my IPS were occurring at the same time as that. Again, this is eight, six, eight months down the road that I was able to recall the events and correlate the events. But um, so there there was clearly some nationwide effort going on from foreign state at that point. And I think of all the things that are going on from a cyber perspective, that is the thing that that keeps me up at night at most is what. What countries out there, whether it's North Korea, China, Russia, Iran, you name it, that doesn't like us, uh, doesn't doesn't like us as a company, us as a people, whatever whatever boundary you want to put on that, um, is trying to 
attack us and get information out of our systems that I cannot defend against, that I don't have the dollars to defend against, that I don't have the systems to defend against, and so on and so forth. And what allows me to sleep at night are those relationships that I've developed with the intelligence community, with the FBI and other sources where I can pick up the phone and say, guys, I'm seeing this. This looks like something that we need to address together. Can you confirm or deny? And can you help me out here? And um, and so InfraGuard allows for that. It's allowed for me to branch out my my resource network um, to to allow me to uh, to get a little bit of sleep at night um, from from those types of situations. Well, I couldn't agree more with your sentiments about InfraGuard, and especially the one about making sure that the people who go uh, are equipped to to handle the information. I can recall walking out of a Red Dart uh, conference that I was invited to as a result of the the membership that had members from all the different agencies. Um, and I was just dumbfounded by the information that was dropped at that event and the conversations I was having. And it, I had to literally sit in my car for about a 20 minutes, just sitting by myself alone, processing everything that, that I had just learned, um, and trying to fit all that into my, you know, it just changed my whole paradigm reality. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, think about, think about this, you're sitting in your car thinking that way over unclassified information. Right. Imagine, exactly. imagine what it would be like if you were inside, and, and I'm not an adversary whatsoever. I'm a, I'm a proponent of the NSA or the CIA or something like that. Imagine sitting inside in their operation center, getting the classified information on those same subjects, and and what you might walk away from every night thinking. <laughs> um, well, I've got two last questions for you, man, and I agree. Okay. Your podcast, but it's most well worth, I think, everybody's time who's, who's still hanging with us here. Um, what so one of the, the questions I like to ask my listeners is what is something that you've learned or that you've uh, experienced over the last couple of weeks or months or just recently that's truly blown your mind and, and maybe even changed your paradigm reality? Um, and you're, you know, as you've been geeking out on, on different projects, yeah, um, probably the rise of privacy. Um, in the United States, uh, you know, Europeans, uh, general data privacy rule as example, privacy shield as example, and, and previous scenarios, the Europeans have always been really focused on privacy. Uh, Americans have been focused on security. And ever since the RSA conference uh, in April, um, I have seen a dramatic rise in the privacy concerns of the rank and file person. Um, unfortunately, what I've also seen with that is a dramatic lack of understanding of what uh, of what that means. Um, you know, I, I hear these people who are not, who are even educated people, but generally just rank and file people uh, in the country saying, well, hey, I put that data on, on Facebook. I expected them to, you know, to protect it without realizing that, A, there's an end user license agreement. There's a EULA that describes how your data is going to be used if you were to read it. Number two, um, especially this, not realizing or, or not thinking that Facebook is a private entity. It's not a government entity. You don't have First Amendment rights on Facebook. You don't have First Amendment rights on Twitter, uh, per se. Um, you know, it's, it, they can shut the servers down, shut the service down, Anytime they want to, they could kick you off anytime they want to because you need to abide by their rules. So there's this there, there's this overarching 
hey, we need to have privacy. We need to enforce privacy on, on a Facebook or a Twitter type of environment without the understanding of what people are really asking for. It's almost as if there's a hype wave going on. Now, it has subsided a little bit in the past couple of weeks, a couple, maybe a month or so. But, um, but that whole Cambridge Analytica thing and, and whatnot just built uh, to me, built over the summer and, and has been continuing. And that, that's a, that's a, it's starting to have a, an effect, if you will, on some of the contracts I've seen. Um, the language that's coming through on new contracts uh, with our MSA um, actually is saying privacy requirements. Uh, in it. And I think GDPR has a, has a significant aspect on that as well. But the language that I've seen has been uh, more, more along the, the, the hype wave that I talked about with uh, social media than it has been GDPR. Yeah, that's interesting. And almost every website now that I go to is requiring that you kind of click yes or no to agreeing to you know, mm-hmm. the cookies or, or related tracking that may be occurring. Yep. On yeah, that's site. GDPR related for sure. Um, all right, my friend. Well, the last question I have for you is, do you love data centers? I absolutely, I love data centers. Well, I love to hear it, and I appreciate you taking the time. And for those who are looking to maybe follow up with this conversation and get educated a little bit more or want to speak with you about um, some of the, the data bank services, uh, security as a service, or whatever it might be, how, how is, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, best way to get all of us is um, you could you could do it one of two ways. Uh, is go to our website uh, databank.com and um, and you could submit some information there securely, of course, um, to to talk to one of our sales or um, marketing folks uh, about the services that we offer. If you don't want to talk to me directly, um, if you want uh, to speak to me uh, directly, um, you can uh, you can send a, an email to compliance at databank.com. And we can we can work with you direct on that. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Have yourself a uh, a beautiful evening. Enjoy all that is great about Illinois. Uh, and I hope to be talking to you sometime again soon. Excellent. Same here. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. 